Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Mythic Mission with Professor Michael Jahosky. Today's episode number 13, and it is entitled Tolkien's Sacramental Vision. And on the show today, I'm going to be talking about what sacramentalism is, how it is related to Tolkien's Art of the Parable, which was the title of an essay that his friend, Father Robert Murray, uh, wrote and um, originally gave as a sermon in the Tolkien Centenary in 1992. We're going to be talking about how sacramentalism is on display in Tolkien's books and how this is related to uh, what Lewis, C.S. Lewis, called symbolism, or also, alternatively, sacramentalism. We're going to see how, especially Tolkien, um, used the sacramental view of reality in his writings and how that is a persuasive powerhouse for the gospel of Jesus Christ and how it is modeled on the way that Jesus told his parables in the gospels. We're also going to be framing this within a larger discussion that's found in one of um, uh, beloved essays of C.S. Lewis called Meditation in a Toolshed, in which Lewis discusses the difference between looking at and looking along. And now these are not pitted against each other, but they are very different. We're going to be discussing how that figures into the discussion of sacramentalism, what we can learn from all of these insights and bring them to bear in our reading and enjoyment of Tolkien's books. Now, just um, a word before some announcements, and uh, I guess a word of caution. As I've written in my book, and was very cautious to do so, before getting into the meat of my analysis in chapters 3 through 5, I uh, put in the introduction and chapters 1 through 2 several comments that urged us that what we're doing, what I'm doing in this book, is not trying to make uh, a series of this equals that allegorical uh, connections and uh, equations. That's, um, of course, impossible to completely avoid pointing out connections, but there's a difference between saying, okay, this is all there is, we've decoded it, and this is all there is? Okay, you know, well, is, is this, th this exactly that? Is this equal that? Or is it more suggestive? Does it open up even more possible interpretations? Uh, and, of course, that's the, the approach that I take. And so, by no means are we saying that you know, the ultimate goal is that we've decoded this. What we're saying is, look, there is a way to read these books and see sacramentalism on display. There is a, obviously a pointing toward the incarnation, towards the gospel. However, that does not diminish the enjoyment of the story, and it does not make it any easier, in fact. Uh, it might even make it harder to perceive the gospel in Middle-earth, because even though we've kind of learned how to do it, as it were, in my book, I've still found that I am still learning new things. Just when I come to the Bible and I thought uh, foolishly, you know, I've read this parable a thousand times, I know what this means, um, I learned something new. I just recently was reading, uh, rereading Klein Snodgrass's uh, Stories with Intent, which is an excellent book on the parables, by the way, and uh, I came to a reading of the parable of the sower in Mark chapter 4 again with his insights, and um, I, I was amazed at, at the fact that I could still learn something, and, and of course I can. Uh, I foolishly believed that, you know, I had kind of seen all that there was to see. And we would be uh, remiss to, to not say that this is applicable to our reading of uh, Tolkien's books. Yes, we may have uncovered how truth, the Christian truth, is communicated uh, indirectly in Middle-earth, but that doesn't mean that we've, uh, we've exhausted all of its uh, riches and plumbed all of its depths. That's certainly not the case. On today's show, I'm here to talk about Tolkien's sacramental vision of reality. This is a perfect episode to follow on the heels of the previous episode, in which I spoke about Tolkien's uh, comments about the historicity or alleged historicity of Middle-earth and its connection to our real historical human timeline. 
So this is a great follow-up, and it's a bit more theological and philosophical in nature. Uh, and we're going to be talking about what sacramentalism is. And the first place I'm going to point is my book. In page 21, I talk about uh, what a type is and what typology is as an, a way of interpreting scripture. And this is a, a great sort of initial uh, step into defining what sacramentalism uh, or what C.S. Lewis also kind of called symbolism is, as opposed to allegory. Now, we know that Tolkien and Lewis both uh, used a lot of different terms, some of which meant the same thing and uh, weren't always clear about how they were using their word. I mean, allegory is probably the most you know, egregious uh, example there, but we'll get to that later. You know, for example, uh, Lewis speaks of sacramentalism, supposal and symbolism kind of being on the one side as opposed to allegory. Uh, and anyway, we'll work our way up to that again. But today's episode, I really want to just explore what it means to view reality sacramentally and how that is Christian. And I wouldn't say that it's only Christian, but I would say it's supremely Christian. And in fact, that's an important uh, delineation or, or uh, caveat that I want to give right now is that it isn't unique to Christianity. That is that other cultures and, and myths and worldviews, religions, whatever you'd like to call them, have uh, also assumed a sacramental view of reality. But of course, it's pointing to something, these, these images uh, and these types are pointing to something or someone that, that is you know, not the truth, not the complete truth, uh, or pointing in a direction that doesn't make much sense and that doesn't have explanatory scope and power like the Christian story has. And I'll try to get into that a little later on as well. Because you know, I asked this question in my book, you know, well, why, why is Christianity the, the totally and completely true myth? Why, why not Buddhism or Islam? After all, some of these religions, not Buddhism, but you know, some of these religions like Islam do claim that they are the total truth over and against Christianity. So we'll kind of finish on that today because that's a, a question about religious pluralism and, and getting along with people of different beliefs. But um, first, let's talk about types, and then we'll build into what other authors um, I've been reading lately and, and have some of whom are in my bibliography have said about sacramentalism. And we'll, we'll be pulling from a lot of different sources. I'll be sure to uh, refer to some of these great authors and books in which you can learn more in addition to my own. Uh, and then we'll, we'll finish on a little religious pluralism note uh, at the end. So our first step to understanding what sacramentalism is and how to view reality sacramentally you go to page 21 of the e-edition, e-book edition of my book, in the introduction, I talk about types being signposts or pointers or images that have been planted in reality that point toward an antitype. Now, the Greek word typos means a figure or a model. It can also mean uh, something like an image. Okay, a um, Anglican scholar whose book I would highly recommend to you is in the bibliography, quoted uh, several times throughout my book, is Gerald R. McDermott. He writes in his book, Everyday Glory, that types are things or events that God has set in place. Of course, the Bible tells us, I say in my book, that types do not merely point to these realities. And this is a key uh, part right now I want you to pay attention to. These types are the realities they point to. They participate. So what I mean by participatory, uh, when you'll hear me talk about that today, that these types don't merely point to, but participate or somehow mysteriously are the things to which they point is a deeply Christian, a uniquely Christian point, uh, and is also a bit of a mystery, something that Edward Pusey calls the sacramental union, which um, I'll talk about in a moment. So what I mean by this is that when um, a story has certain images and, and qualities in it, a certain atmosphere or tone, 
uh, and it's suggesting that we're, you know, kind of looking at, at, at the thing to which it points. It's very suggestive in its way that it does that, as all images are. Um, what we're wanting to, to kind of take away at this point is that the type somehow is bound up in the ontological, or that is the metaphysical beingness of the thing it points to. So it, it somehow mysteriously is the thing it points to. That is, we can learn a great deal about Christ from looking at the image of a king and more, even more specifically, the image of a exiled and returning king. And even more specifically, the image of an exiled returning king whose hands heal, who finds a sapling of a tree that was once in uh, heaven on earth, Valinor in Middle Earth. And I could go on and on. And as we start to look at all these images that cluster together, this is what I mean by that the fact that the types participate in the antitype to which they point, or in this case, to whom they point. So that, that's something of a, uh, an important point that we need to meditate on. And a good myth um, or mythic sort of utterance does that. You know, a good uh, image, a poetic image, is going to be suggestive of the thing to which it points, while also maintaining somewhat of its own integrity. So a king is a king, after all. but it, it, it's redolent with other meanings and it, and it suggests uh, some ultimate thing to which it or to whom it points. Uh, and somehow kind of we learn something about the thing to which and to whom in this case it points by participating in enjoying, uh, I should say, in enjoying the image. So words are, are difficult here, but another way of stating this is that, you know, we learn best through concrete examples. We learn best through interaction with things in the real world through examples and um, uh, you know, participating in rituals. For, for example, Thomas Aquinas uh, you know, referred to the sacraments such as baptism and the Eucharist as examples of types that point toward the antitypes of God's grace and fellowship with Jesus. And so in the eating of the bread and wine, the body and the flesh and, and blood of Jesus, we are somehow participating in, in knowing Jesus. That is that we are part of the body of Christ, that we are knowing uh, the divine uh, son of God uh, when, we, when we participate in that ritual. So it isn't just a, a meal. It, it has significance or a surplus of meaning is a great way to kind of summarize all that I've just said. Okay, it, it, it has suggestive qualities that go beyond the, the image or the ritual itself. Sensory experiences, in other words, um, you know, enact and demonstrate in their very being what they mean to say. And you'll notice in my book, and I repeat this, it's kind of like a drumbeat to my whole book. The form is the, you know, in the form is the content that the form wants to communicate. That is the form of the story, the, the, the fact that it is a story is part and parcel to understanding the content that the story is meaning to communicate. That is, there is a, a, a mythical or story-like quality um, about the thing to which it, the story points. Uh, so in that case, what I mean is that in the form of the parable, and we look more closely at what a parable is, it suggests something about uh, the incarnation, that is the person of Jesus Christ itself. That is, the um, parable says, in its form, what it wishes to say in its content. And it's uh, very important we grasp this at this early stage that sacramentalism is kind of, this is what this is, is that everything 
that um, every image, every type somehow points to and participates in something higher. Uh, that is that it derives its being from something ontologically higher than itself. And you, you grasp what I mean because I'm using images of up and down. And, and I think you can see this kind of cascade effect as I explain it. And that's because you are um, better at grasping, you, you, you learn better um, and, and have a better, uh, an easier job at grasping my point when I use images. So one question that kind of arises from this, and we're still working our way up to a, you know, a concise definition of sacramentalism is, why does God choose to speak indirectly? So that's what sacramentalism as a language really ultimately is. Uh, mythical language in general is indirect. What does that say? And what does that disclose about the character of God? I think it says that he's beautiful, that he's good, and that he's true. He is the three transcendentals in one person, after all, and so much more, of course. But he is uh, playful and whimsical. He loves and delights in beauty. He loves in taking our time. In a story, not only do the characters take their time, but we are able to take our time as we participate in the narrative itself we're not rushed to a point of decision right away. Um, it shows that there's a narrative quality to coming to belief and a narrative quality about life. And this indirect approach, of course, mimics life itself. It mimics reality. And I think that that says that God understands us and he knows he has to accommodate his way of communicating about himself and the things that he wants us to grasp by using an indirect mythical sacramental story like approach, a poetic approach. The fact that the Bible is 70 plus percent poetry is such an important uh, point, I think, that we just meditate on that for a minute, is that God loves poetry because he himself not only is the maker of poetry uh, and the source of poetry, but uh, his son, Jesus Christ, is the greatest poetry that's that's ever been and ever will be and that is. And so there's... Um, something of a hint towards what we'll talk about later with the, the, the parabolic uh, nature of the incarnation and what this has to do with sacramentalism. Because remember, we're, we're trying to work up uh, from typology and understanding of sacramentalism. We've now talked about why God prefers to speak that way, um, what it says about him, and, and now we're going to connect all this with the art of the parable. But of course, not before we talk a little bit more about uh, this sacramentalism as a concept. So Again, so sacramentalism needs to be understood uh, now in, in, in and of itself as a term. So let's talk about that. And there's a couple different authors that I would relate, um, you know, uh, I would recommend to you rather. Uh, and that is uh, Brian Williams is a new book. Brian Williams came on the show to talk about his book, C.S. Lewis, Pre-Evangelism for a Post-Christian World, Why Narnia Might Be More Real Than We Think, just a few episodes ago. And in his book, ebook edition, uh, page 80, he has got a section on sacramentalism. This is chapter two of his book, C.S. Lewis's Sacramental View of Reality. He himself is drawing on the writings of Lewis and other authors. And what he uh, explains is this notion of pointing to something. And this brings us back to typology. To what does nature and things in nature point? What hints does the created world give about the higher, unseen, transcendent realm about God in particular? Um, this is something that I agree with uh, Dr. Williams about, that the fact that creation's pointing to something is not merely the kind of pointing that we find in a signpost. Uh, I think he later gives the example of like a, a deer warning sign, right, that you're driving. In that sense, that's just a signpost, watch out for deers, uh, you know, or deer, excuse me, they're, they're out and about. Uh, 
Um, well, but that sign doesn't participate in dearness, uh, you know, as the, that's kind of like the platonic explanation of it. Okay, that is that there are certain things that that do this more than others, and um, we want to distinguish between uh, just a a thing that points to something else, but a thing that points to between that and and something that points to and is mysteriously something that something else or someone else. Lewis's views, uh, cre you know, creation as pointing as a kind of participation with that to which it points, which is far more than what a mere sign gives to us. So I explain. Uh, I mean, I agree with, with Dr. Williams there. He says, um, allow me to explain. To borrow a metaphor from the scriptures, the author of Hebrews likely had something like this in mind when he wrote of shadows and true forms in Hebrews 10 verse 1. A shadow can only be cast when light hits an object solid enough to block it for shining on the surface behind or beneath it. The shadow gives to you and to me a clue that something more solid is present. So Lewis's sacramental view of reality bears a close affinity to this shadow pointing to solids phenomenon, which if I'm not mistaken, is a uh, quote to C.S. Lewis's or from C.S. Lewis's essay, Dogma and the Universe in the God in the Dock essay compilation. So you can check that out. So the created world of uh, daily experiences, that is uh, reality itself points to a higher and deeper, further up and further in, as Lewis says in the Narnia books, reality. And that our world is not just a shadow of, uh, as Plato would say, of that higher world, but in this world itself, we can already see glimpses and actualities of that higher world. And that's a big difference. And so a form of communication that embodies that reality, that not the platonic version where it's merely a shadow of the higher world, but one that is a shadow and contains glimpses and actualities of that higher reality is going to be supremely effective in communicating that point. Okay, so Chris Armstrong, I love this book that he's referenced. It's the Tolkien's, um, I'm sorry, I get them mixed up sometimes. <laughs> C.S. Lewis is um, a book about C.S. Lewis called Medieval Wisdom for Modern Christians, Fighting Authentic Faith in a Forgotten Age with C.S. Lewis by Chris Armstrong. And he quotes Armstrong's uh, definition of um, medieval sacramentalism as this. That sacramentalism is a three-part sort of definition it's linked to a set of beliefs that one, transcendent spiritual reality manifests itself in and through created material reality, something we share in common with Platonism, and two, that all creation is in some sense a reflection of God the creator, and thus that three, God is already present in and through the world. He's not separate and disembodied uh, and disconnected from it. Okay, this is what we should understand when we hear the term sacramental or sacramentalism. So my point today is to take this understanding of sacramentalism, now connect it to the idea of the art of the parable. And the big point that I want to leave you with today is that we need to choose a form of communication that is in its form going to say what um, it wishes to say in its content in the story itself. And what ultimately the Christian worldview wants to say is what we just discussed with this definition, this three-part uh, tripartite definition of sacramentalism, that God is in the world already, that there is a deeper and higher reality uh, besides what we see, and that um, in reality, there are all kinds of types, and this is where it connects to typology, that point to this higher reality and to God, its author. And this is, of course, caught up in what I talk about in chapter two of my book with understanding Christianity 
the gospel story as the story of already and not yet. And, and that is a sacramental definition of Christianity, by the way. And so a type of story, like a parable, or as C.S. Lewis called it, a supposal, would be uh, the kind of, uh, or, or fairy story, of course, uh, which is analogous to, I argue, parable, uh, the New Testament parable, not other kinds of parables we find in other uh, kinds of uh, myths and cultures, um, but very specifically the Jewish parables of Jesus, okay? The fairy story, supposal, parable kind of story, the symbolism type of story, or sacramental stories, Lewis also referred to it as. So there's all these different ways of saying the same thing, is set over and against the conscious and intentional allegory that Lewis and, and Tolkien really disliked because it was more platonic in that sense that, you know, these worlds are separate and the lower world only means the upper world and God isn't involved in the world and the point is to escape from the world. It doesn't reflect biblical theology uh, correctly. So I don't think that's the only reason they dislike this kind of story, but I think also they disliked it uh, just to offer another reason is because it wasn't mysterious enough. It, it didn't, lead one on to plumb deeper into reality. It, it spoils everything by pointing out everything that needs to be known. It, it, it offers an opportunity for us to decode reality and then to dust off our hands and say, we figured it out. And I think that, that um, you know, overt simplicity is obviously a betrayal of the complexity of the, the world that God actually made. And, and that's, you know, just kind of a simpleton story that we would be uh, left with. And I don't think that's a, a full treatment of the reasons, of course, I write about it in my book, that Tolkien and Lewis dislike that kind of allegory, but that, that's a good start. Okay, so now those other clusters of terms we talked about on the other side of the spectrum, the mythical, the other side of the mythical spectrum, uh, need to be kind of linked up now. So, okay, how is Lewis's understanding of sacramentalism connected to Tolkien's Art of the Parable and his comments on fairy story? Well, the more I've read Lewis and Tolkien's uh, writings on fairy stories, for both men wrote about fairy stories, and the more that I've read about what they've said about sacramentalism and um, symbolism, the more I'm convinced that these are all just many different ways of saying the same thing. Dr. Michael Ward agrees in his book, Planet Narnia, uh, he says that, you know, for Lewis, uh, Lewis equated symbolism roughly with sacramentalism and both uh, distinguished from allegory. This sounds a lot like what Tolkien, uh, you know, who doesn't mention, that's true, parable, but when he speaks of fairy story, not allegory, you know, that yes, it is a, technically because it can, you know, every story is going to contain some allegorical elements. This doesn't mean it is that kind of allegory, but yeah, it's technically an allegory, but it's opposite the kind of blatant, explicit, and conscious allegory. And, you know, so we have the fairy story and the parable for Tolkien on the, on the uh, side of Lewis's symbolism slash sacramentalism. And I would also offer that Lewis's comments about the supposal are roughly the same, another way of saying the same thing as all of these other terms. So all of these terms are on one side of that allegorical mythical spectrum and the crude and conscious and intentional allegory being on the other end. And uh, so here's what Lewis says, um, and this might shed some more light on why one was preferred to the other. In the sacramental, supposal, parabolic, fairy story, the symbolic story, um, if our passions, he says, being immaterial can be copied by material inventions, then it is possible that our material world in its turn is a copy of an invisible world. As the god Amor and his figurative garden are to be 
are the actual passions of men, so perhaps we ourselves in our real world are to something else. The attempt to read that something else through its sensible imitations to see the archetype in the copy is what I mean by symbolism or sacramentalism. So this fits in perfectly with what Dr. Williams has already said, and we are pretty acquainted now with this idea of sacramentalism and this idea of seeing the higher in the lower. Now, Lewis mentions the term archetype here, and I should point out that uh, McDermott also makes this distinction that Christians don't just think that you know, all the types and that God has left in reality pointing to himself just um, point to an antitype. They also point to the archetype. Okay, so in a sense, we have in the Bible and in other mythical and religious books and in all of reality, all of these types, these uh, shares, if you will, of God's nature that he's left for us to discover. And they all point to something. Well, they don't just point to an antitype. They point to kind of like an antitype on steroids, the archetype with a capital A. Now, Jung uh, you know, and Joseph Campbell used the term archetype in I think the sense that we're using types, um, but that's because they didn't have the, the same view that Lewis and Tolkien had. Setting that aside, I would say that uh, the archetype is different than an archetype, right? Uh, so in this case, the archetype is Christ, is the second person of the Trinity, of course, the triune God in its entirety, that it is the great archetype to which all types uh, flow, uh, from which all types flow and to which uh, all types point. So the, the person to whom all types point. So now, um, what does this have to do, what does this sacramentalism have to do with the art of the parable? Well, I think it should be clear. In my book, I argue that if everything in reality, uh, uh, to summarize, in some way points to Jesus Christ, as we've just established, that who is what we call the incarnation, then the best possible way to communicate that fact would be through a type of communication that is in form what it wants to say in content. Now, why would that be the best way? And I say this on page 23 of my introduction. Well, because it conforms to the art of the parable, the way that Jesus told parables, Jesus didn't go around Galilee and Judea talking about himself explicitly. He spoke in parables. There was nothing that he spoke to them except in parables, the gospels tell us. He says in Mark 4, uh, the parable of the sower, if you don't understand this basic parable, how will you understand any parables? He, he says that it's a cipher of sorts, a uh, more like a map, I think would be better, to explore who I am. That is that the, the form of the parable, the, the way under which I, 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 I ch I've chosen to disclose myself is a map for understanding my nature and who I am and what I've come to do and what God is up to in and, and through me. So that's a very important point. So not only does it conform to the art of the parable, but it is um, a gentle, implicit, but nevertheless challenging and deeply uh, human way of, of communicating in a way that we can understand. Uh, obviously, God can understand on a whole different level, a unitive level, but we understand everything in dichotomies, subject versus object, abstract versus concrete, mythos versus logos, looking at versus looking along, which we'll, we'll get into in a minute, thinking versus experiencing or, or contemplating versus enjoying. Uh, there's so many different ways to say that. This is our tragic dilemma of, of fallen man is that we are uh, either uh, you know, uh, doomed to taste and not know or to know and not taste to sort of paraphrase Lewis's tragic dilemma from his essay, Myth Became Fact. So God knows that he has to communicate in a way that accommodates to that, that uh, 
those various dichotomies that we find ourselves with in, in human thinking and experiencing. So I think uh, one other thing we could say here is that uh, sacramentalism has something to do with parables in that the um, type of literature that would manifest itself as a perfect exemplification of this view of reality. Well, think about what a parable is. It is uh, thrown from the side. It's indirect communication. It's comparison. It's resemblance. It comes from the Hebrew word mashal, plural mashalim. So it can mean parables, proverbs, dark sayings, utterances, etc. cetera, uh, wise sayings, you know, anecdotes, um, you know, things like that, various forms of myth. Well, a parable specifically offers a uh, metaphorical primarily, but also occasionally there's some allegorical elements as well, uh, metaphorical comparison between something, two things that don't seem to have anything in common. Okay, and a good metaphor is suggestive of the thing to which it, it speaks. And that, that, that understanding right there is important because that says that therefore parables are primarily typological that is that they will work through the power of images. And that means that's another way of saying metaphor. So we can see that metaphorical language and typological or typological language are basically two ways of saying the same thing. And that the power of parable is through the suggestiveness of the unassigned symbolism in these images in the story. And their fact, their sacramental participation in the thing and the person in this case to which they point. Um, it's a far more dramatic and exciting and adventurous way to learn about who Jesus is and to learn about reality, it leaves open the possibility that we will be restless pilgrims all our lives looking for this thing, this person in this case, to which um, these types point. And it, it shows us that not only God has accommodated himself to us, but that he understands that sometimes coming to belief takes time and that, that, that life and even conversion has a narrative quality to it. We need space. And sometimes, you know, st good stories create alienation um, that give us space to consider and, and to think about what decision we're ultimately going to make. And so, of course, this is related to the art of the parables. That a parable as a, a form of literature does this. It is a story. It is indirect. And the very thing that it's pointing to, this great indirection, this divine incursion of, of God, uh, the strangest thing to us that we, we can't, nobody has seen God, uh, but uniting itself with the familiar, you know, that kind of story is going to point, is, is going to be itself incarnational. And, uh, and that's, that's a good thing because it is, is trying to get us to look at the incarnation. So understand incarnation as kind of the wedding of strange and real, uh, familiar and unfamiliar, uh, directly known and indirectly known. It is the greatest example of indirect communication. It is the, what could be stranger, Sally McFagus said in her book, Speaking in Parables, than the, the uh, coming together of God and man. I mean, that is the ultimate metaphor, is it not? And the only way we can understand that is through more metaphor. And so again, coming back to the point that Sacramentalism has to do with the art of the parable uh, because it is the uh, form of literature and storytelling that reflects the very quality of nature that, and life and, and reality that God has made. It reflects God's plan, right? It has the blueprint of creation that God has made. It has uh, 
that natural power to sort of tell us about what God has done in the world and how he has uh, revealed himself and how we can find out more about him. So again, if everything in reality in some way points to Christ, the incarnation, then the best possible way to communicate that would be through a type of communication that is in its form what it wishes to say in its content. That is, it's very incarnational. And this reminds me of a letter that Tolkien wrote one of his uh, sons, um, letter 89, I think it was Christopher, I'm not, if I'm not mistaken. He says that man is redeemed in a manner that is consonant with his nature by a moving story. And, and that right there kind of is the uh, cherry on top of everything that I've said, that he's referring, I think, there to not only the person of Jesus as God's parable, the incarnation is itself a parable. He is a story, the story of God entering his story, his history, right? But it is also the means through which God discloses exactly that. He, he does it through parables. And so we are, and, and then the gospel uh, of which the parables are sort of miniature encapsulations of, you know, the gospel itself is a moving, the moving story to which he's referring. And so all of these things are kind of multiple ways of saying the same thing. Tolkien is saying the importance of, of how we say this must be incarnational and it, it must reflect accurately and, and faithfully the character of God and how he made reality. And that's why I think it is the most powerful way to communicate. So our stories must be sacramental. But also something that, uh, and before we talk about the looking at versus looking along, and then we'll finish with the religious pluralism stuff I mentioned, one of the uh, other super important aspects of a sacramental or incarnational story uh, that we see in the supposal, the parable slash fairy story, the symbolic rather than allegorical story is God's hiddenness. And of course, this will make plenty of sense by now because we've seen that types and, and that is metaphorical or typological communication is by its uh, very nature suggestive and mysterious. It, it conceals in order to reveal. It is a, a kind of furtive form, indirect, indirect form of communication. And that's why it's supremely effective at revealing uh, what it really ultimately wants to communicate. And we, we can't say that it's about nothing, ultimately. So the authors out there that, that conclude that if it ultimately points us to the actual incarnation, Jesus, that the story is somehow now spoiled, it's an allegory. Well, why else did Lewis and Tolkien go to so much furtive, uh, secretive manner of storytelling and uh, other than to, to accomplish that, we know that they wanted to accomplish this, but they wanted to do it in a way that honored and reflected the way that God did it himself and to reflect the way in which God made reality and, and human nature. So I think, you know, we, we, can't, we can't say that. And in my book, I say we, we can't get upset anymore at the fact that ultimately we can understand that these stories are pointing to Jesus and the Christian way of looking at things. That doesn't mean that it's all done. So I think people who think that have a caricature of Christianity because they think, oh, oh, it's a Christian story pointing to Christianity. Well, I know what Christianity is about. Well, this is one of my great points in my book. I, no, maybe you don't. Even myself and, and these great scholars that I read um, who have just written these wonderful books that I've mentioned, Dr. Ward, Dr. Williams, Dr. Paul Gould, uh, people, even folks that have been on the show, um, you know, Devin, Devin Brown, Dr. Devin Brown, they, they, they've said, look, well, maybe you don't know what Christianity is about. Maybe you think you do, 
But that's why indirect communication is so effective is it, it shows us what we couldn't see or didn't see before. It, um, it expands our understanding of Christianity. And this is what Christopher Tolkien meant in uh, Morgoth's Ring, volume 10, I think, of the history of Middle Earth, uh, where he says that the debate of Finrod and Andreth, which I talk about in chapter five of my book, uh, ultimately is an extension of Christian theology, is that it opens up a more capacious understanding of Christianity. And the only way you can do that is by doing it this way. Um, and so I think people who get upset, and I've read several books about Tolkien's writings that scholars say, well, it's not a fully Christian story, or it's not even a Christian story at all, or you know, we can't say that without it being allegory. Well, poppycock, no. Um, what, that, what that means is that you think, okay, that's going to spoil the rest of the story, and we, there's, we don't need to know anything else, right? That we now know everything there is to know because we know it's a Christian story, because I know what Christianity means. Uh, nonsense. No, not at all. And, and this is why I write in my book that I have learned so much more about Scripture and, and, and God's story by reading these other stories. Uh, and in fact, my own coming to faith, you know, happened that way. Uh, I didn't realize it. And that's often how it happens, which is just awesome. And, you know, one of God's, I think, great proofs of his existence is he shows us there's always something we, we can't, we're not wise enough to foresee in our own lives. And he reveals it at the appointed time, which reminds me, by the way, I have a line from uh, the debate of Finrod and Andreth, which I include towards the end of my book, where he says a master storyteller, referring to Iluvatar, God, uh, waits until the right moment to reveal the, the, the point of the story. And that aha moment for me was the connection between, you know, sacramentalism and the art of the parable, this idea that it is in form what it wishes to say in content. That was the insight, that, that great indirect point, um, that, that way of opening up what we thought we knew about Christianity to show us more riches was what really seized me and, and, um, and really changed my life. And I hope it's going to change yours. Uh, and I, I want to finish now just kind of talking about a way we can frame all of this. Uh, and we've talked now about, you know, there's several different ways to say the same thing. So forgive me for dropping more terms. But, you know, in Lewis's essay, um, Meditation in a Tool Shed, he talks about looking at the beam of light coming in from the top of the shed and seeing the dust mites kind of swirling around in the beam of light and then stepping into the light and looking along it. And he no longer sees the beam. He sees, you know, the crack in the wood and then the sun, you know, uh, millions of miles away. Uh, and he's looking along the beam to see the trees outside and, and, and therefore the, the sun further along. What he, what he is establishing here is that there are two ways of looking at reality. There is looking at the sunbeam, and there's looking along it. Now, these are not pitted against each other, just like mythos and logos, or subjective and objective, or abstract and concrete. A great story has both. And we can't say, let's just look at love as a biochemical phenomenon that's incomplete. But nor can we say, let's just look at love as a uh, a potent emotional cocktail and a, uh, a wonderful sublime experience. We, we need to also step back and think about, well, what is love? Where does it come from? Why, why do we want to feel love? Why do we, why do we feel the need to, to show people love? And so these are not epistemological, for those of you that are not familiar with this term, epistemology is the philosophical uh, 
study of how we know what we know, the branch of philosophy that deals with that. Um, these are not two mutually exclusive epistemological ways of looking at the world. They are complementary. And so looking at is the scientific, it's the uh, analytical, it's the logos, right? Looking along is the mythic, the indirect, the poetic, the, the um, looking along is, uh, Lewis says, kind of synonymous with enjoyment. And uh, looking at is synonymous with contemplation or thinking. And elsewhere in Myth Became Fact, he says, uh, states this same point in a different way. He makes a distinction between knowing and tasting. Well, tasting is looking along, knowing is looking at. And uh, so you can see there's always multiple ways in which we can express the same idea. So what does this have to do with our whole conversation? Well, a good form of communication, as we've said, is incarnational, sacramental, this art of the parable. But it is primarily, first and foremost, looking along. And I would say if there was one that had an edge over the two, and again, they're not in competition, but looking along would be it because in our previous podcast episode, we talked about the imagination and myth and truth and reality. Um, we talked about the instrumental role of the imagination. The imagination is, is involved both in the act of imagining, but also in the act of reasoning. And so I would say that sublimely and, and fascinatingly, the looking along epistemology is supreme in, in one sense in that it, it is a part of both itself and looking at and that we cannot uh, separate ultimately these two. And so I think that's very important. And so in my book, I, I kind of state it using the terms that the ancient Greeks did, uh, mythos and logos, which were terms that, of course, Tolkien and, and Lewis were quite familiar with. Um, and, and this is, again, two, another way, two, two other ways of saying the same thing. You know, and uh, even Friedrich Nietzsche had his Apollonian and Dionysian uh, dichotomy. It's again, same, same thing, different, different guys. So, you know, I talk about the need to bring these two together in a story form and in, in an expression of communication that unites both. And that is a sacramental story, a, a parabolic story, a good fairy story, a supposal. And it's going to have that looking along and looking at together so that we can fully think about and enjoy the, the, the atmosphere of the story. And, and Lewis made a big fuss about that, by the way. He really made a big fuss about the, the fact that at the end of the day with the story that we want to keep coming back to had to do with um, the tone and the atmosphere of the story. And if, if it is suggestive and implicit, and, and that means metaphorical and typological, it is going to have that quality. If God is hidden we're gonna to wanna to keep coming back to that story. Now, okay, if it's not a Christian story, the thing to which it points, if it's not disclosed up front, if it's not expressly allegorical, then yeah, we're gonna keep coming back to it. And that's one of the things that makes for a great story is that atmosphere, the literal air that we breathe about, uh, of the story. And, and of course, uh, Michael Ward, you know, in his book, Planet Narnia, which by the way, is a fantastic book. He writes about Lewis's fascination with the air of the story, that is the, the, the tone and the atmosphere, it has to have that um, sacramental quality and, and uh, in order for it to be a truly persuasive and immersive and I think ultimately effective story and supremely a, a Christian story. And that is, of course, in the, in the end, what Lewis and Tolkien wanted to do, that was their end goal. And Lewis and Tolkien in their own writings tell us this again and again, despite what else they say about how they do it, 
which we have investigated in um, several episodes and in my book, the ultimate end result is that this is what they wanted to say. There is no doubt that the Chronicles of Narnia and the Lord of the Rings and the rest of the books, prequel books, and the stories that frame the Lord of the Rings are Christian, fully Christian stories. And they are principally because they are not just about Christian, you know, Judeo-Christian biblical stuff. They have types from all creation in them. They have institutions, events, characters, themes, images uh, that, that we can find in all the great stories. And, and that brings me to my final point today. You know, we know it's a well-known fact if you've read my book, and if you've heard me say this before on the podcast, that Lewis would not have come to faith if it meant embracing Christianity to the exclusion uh, of every other worldview, and that he was told from a very early age that Christianity was the only religion that was 100% true and everything else was 100% false. This uh, reformed Protestant uh, possibly way of looking at it, although many Catholics look at it that way too. Um, you know, Martin Luther's debate with Erasmus, where he talks about everything outside the Bible and the tradition is in the darkness and everything inside is in the light. We can't embrace that view, I, I think. Uh, it's too narrow a view in the wrong way. Of course, narrow is inevitable, but that's the wrong narrow. Uh, so in my book, I, I make the case that, yeah, there are Anglo-Saxon, Greco-Roman, and Finnish elements, um, and French romant romantic elements in the Lord of the Rings. Of course there are. This is the best way to show how much more Christian they are by showing the parallels with the pagan Christs and the other themes that, of dying and rising gods and incarnational themes we find in other myths, among other, the Exodus Redditus, the Latin of exile and return theme that we see in The Hobbit with the dwarves and with Aragorn and the Numenorians. It's all, it all converges to make uh, this very clear that it is a, a, a ultimately a Christian story and uh, all the more so because of these, these shared elements that are a part of all true good and beautiful stories around the world. So then my final comment, uh, sort of topic, I guess, uh, and comment on that topic of religious pluralism, metaphysical pluralism, are all religions equally true? Well, it depends on what you mean by true. Um, are they, do they all contain truth? I, I think that the ones that, that do, do. <laughs> it depends on what we're looking at and what we're examining. A uh, true statement is one which is a accurate proposition about reality. It corresponds accurately with the way things are that fits in with the facts and uh, in a universal kind of way. Uh, whether people believe it or not is inconsequential. Um, that fits in with universal human longings and existential um, uh, understanding. And uh, of course, if we don't have that, what we have is madness and chaos and relativism. We have no standard. And so if you say, well, who gets to determine that? Well, somebody does. We all have the measuring stick. And the thing we measure with, Lewis says, must be independent of the thing measured. Otherwise, the very statement, um, I don't need a thing to measure with, needs to be measured with something else. And, and you're denying that very fact. So it's, it's a completely self-defeating argument. So in the end, I think among the religions, major world traditions today, yes, I would say they all contain a share, typological share in the archetype of Jesus, some to a lesser degree than others. And so there are rules of engagement here. They need to conform to the types mentioned in the Bible or types that the Bible mentions we can find out there in the world that are sanctioned by this uh, touchstone of truth that we Christians believe the Bible is. 
Um, we need to also understand that, you know, that being similar doesn't mean the same. And of course, Lewis and Tolkien would agree that, you know, the fact that these other mythological elements are present in the Lord of the Rings um, doesn't, or the Narnia books, doesn't mean that they're on the same level of truth uh, and ontological, ontologically understood um, as Christianity, but that they were put there by God to point to him. So, yes, I think that we have to, in the end, say that among the great traditions today, there is truth, goodness, and beauty to be found. And when we do, we find Christ. Little shards and fragments uh, uh, and types of Christ that, that have that share in the great archetype, the sacramental union that Edward Pusey spoke about. I think Jonathan Edwards also wrote about this as well. And so did Aquinas. All three of them wrote uh, about types and this, this sacramentalism that we've talked about today. And so, yes, um, I do think that that is an accurate statement, but equally true in the sense of all objectively completely true, that's nonsense. It, it can't be. It goes back to the relativistic statement that I made a few minutes ago. We, and, and not all the religions of the world or traditions uh, like secular traditions are not about God. So we can't also say that they're all about the same thing because that's not true. They all contradict and especially Islam and Christianity do. Um, but again, so, you know, they're not all to each their own true. That is for the Christians, Christianity is ultimately true, because if we say that, then we're, we're just relativizing things on a grander scale and saying that, of course, there's no way to speak of good and bad and right and wrong and true and false anymore, because we just define that culturally or within our own milieu of our own religious community. And we get into all sorts of problems there. So that's not going to work either. So I think then it comes down to if Christianity is the completely true myth, as uh, Dr. Lewis Marcos and I've spoken about on uh, Mythic Mission episode number one, um, then what that means is we would need to then look at the objection, well, why is it Christianity? Well, okay, you have to look at all the criteria that Christianity claims to explain, and you got to do this for all the religions. So you got to use the same measuring stick for all of them. Can Buddhism explain why Islam, Judaism, Christianity, not, not in any particular order, just the monotheistic traditions exist? Can Buddhism make sense of God's existence? Uh, can it confront the good arguments out there for the existence of a personal God? I, I don't think so. Well, then it fails to have explanatory scope and power. So why some might say, and I talk about this in the introduction of my book, by the way, why some say, uh, you know, can it not be Buddhism that is the completely true myth? Well, that's because um, the objective criteria that we come to a consensus about and that theologians and philosophers have over many centuries, and again, remember, you can't get overly skeptical on me and say, well, that can't be any good because, you know, um, who, who gets to say? Well, someone has to say, so we have to have criteria in the end. Well, so granted the criteria, it doesn't meet it. It doesn't, it doesn't explain it. It doesn't uh, explain the various facts in life. And Islam, of course, can't explain why something like Christianity exists or its explanation doesn't make sense of the evidence that points to the facts that Christianity has. So it fails there to convince and persuade. And um, if you ever are in St. Petersburg or Clearwater, Florida, and you come take a class with me, this is something we talk a lot about in my classrooms. It's always a great conversation. And we go through first in kind of establishing what we did with the relativism argument. And then we talk about the criteria we can come to and the skeptical objections to that. And then we move our way into looking at the traditions and 
and looking at what certain scholars have offered up as a set of criteria uh, that all can be judged and measured by either living up to or not. And then we try to come to an abductive, uh, not deductive, because most things in life are not deductible um, or, or provable using deductive logic. Um, we're using abductive logic here in reasoning. We're coming to the best possible explanation. And by the way, Sherlock Holmes used abduction, not induction or deduction. Uh, everybody always says it's deduction, but it's abductive uh, reasoning, finding the best possible explanation of the facts. We can't prove in the end, whether through abduction or deduction. I mean, again, uh, most things in life are not ultimately deductibly knowable. But uh, I would say we can't deductibly prove ultimately that Christianity versus Buddhism is ultimately true or vice versa. And so one might despair of it all and say, well, then what's the point? Well, you have to look realistically at your life that most things you don't know 100%. This is too high a bar. And I think it is also one of the evidences for pointing to something, uh, a being that is greater than ourselves, to that higher reality that we can't epistemologically uh, as Dr. Ward put it in his book, Planet Narnia, take out our eyeballs and, and look at our eyeballs, right? We can't get outside ourselves. We can't ultimately do this because if God exists, if there is a revelation from outside the created world about the way the world is, and we didn't create this world ourselves, then the stupidest idea we could possibly have, the most foolish idea would be that we have created it. I'm paraphrasing Lewis's essay, The Poison of Subjectivism here. Um, and it just so happens we can't ultimately do this, but that doesn't mean that we can't know something well or enough to get on in life. And if Christianity is true, or even some of the other monotheistic traditions, and we're not alone, and I'm not talking about aliens, folks, I'm talking about the, the triune God, or at least the monotheistic God uh, and the other traditions, then we would expect that we don't have all the answers and that having this bar is not even possible in the sciences and yet we pretend that it is. Um, and Lewis was constantly surprised, uh, I think, by this uh, attitude in his own time. And we are, uh, by our, at least some of us are, uh, surprised by the fact that we speak of scientific uh, you know, certitude. It doesn't exist. We're, we're constantly uh, and imaginatively exploring and discovering new ideas about the way the world works and, and, and um, contradicting earlier theories that are no longer valid. And this doesn't mean that the truth changes. It means that our perception of that truth changes. And of course, no one would deny that. We make this solid distinction between perception and reality. It's very important. Um, and yeah, human perception of truth has constantly changed. And it is both a great good and an unfortunate evil that that is the case. And part of our fallenness, um, we've gotten these wrongheaded ideas and, and absolutely horrible evil ideas in our heads sometimes. And then we've changed and started looking at the world differently and it's happened the other way around as well. Um, so it is a double-edged sword, but there is a distinction. And so again, like in the sciences, our perceptions about the scientific facts change, but the facts themselves are always there. We just may have to catch up to them. So I think that'll conclude our uh, 13th episode, Tolkien's Sacramental Vision of Reality today. I hope you enjoyed it. Hope you walk away with a better understanding of sacramentalism's uh, relationship to Tolkien's art of the parable, which of course he got from the master himself, Jesus's art of the parable. I hope you also came away with some other um, things to think about, about religious pluralism and the difference of looking at versus looking along and how that relates to sacramentalism and the art of the parable, among other things. 
and uh, all this through the writings of J.R.R. Tolkien and his books, um, uh, and of course C.S. Lewis, who we'll be giving a full treatment of in the future uh, through his Narnia books. We'll be looking at them as sacramental stories in the future, um, kind of doing our own recordings of like what we did with Dr. Williams when we had him on the show, uh, where we talked to him about this uh, view. We'll be taking a deep dive into the Chronicles of Narnia ourselves and uh, into the writings of Tolkien as well. So I look forward to it. Uh, and I hope you are too. Thanks for listening today and God bless.